It is good to be with you again this morning. Um, thank you for all who participated last week in our first pre-class, I don't know what it was, right? As we watched the video over in the chapel together. Um, it was, it was, it was great, You're right? Godspeed, right? Living life, Godspeed. Um, so I was very blessed by that video, and I hope that sometime in the future we can have an opportunity to watch that again. There, there are more videos beyond that ones, but anyhow, we are very excited to be starting in, in a new year, right? You were all here with us last year, year through the Bible, genre by genre, and now we are turning towards theology, but what is theology? I'm not going to answer that because he will uh, in just a few minutes. Um, this is uh, Dr. T.C. Ham from Malone. I know he's taught here before, so many of you probably already know him. Uh, he has been at Malone now for seven years and has been teaching uh, at the college level for 13. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, so we're very excited to have him here. And he was uh, when I contacted him to say, would you like to teach, I also said, the book that we're kind of basing the whole year on, and he said, perfect, because I teach that very book. So uh, it is, and you'll see, you'll see it in just a few minutes, it's Daniel Migliori's Faith Seeking Understanding, and in the announcements and the order of service and, and tidings, you're encouraged, if you feel like you want to go deeper, buy it. If you don't, you can still come to class and get by without even touching the book or ever holding the book. You'll be fine, right? We're just using it behind the scenes to structure the, the class as it goes along. So uh, doc, uh, Dr. Ham will be here for a few weeks, then I'm coming on board, then we've got Rabbi Spitzer and Adlin coming to co-teach for a few weeks. We've got a, a powerful, powerful fall, a great group of teachers together. I'm very excited. One other announcement before I pray. If you remember back to May, um, I, I ha was teaching on Revelation, and then over the summer I did six weeks on Revelation. Well, this evening at 4 p.m., if you come back, that is the conclusion of Revelation, right? We may not talk about it for a little while. This is the epic tell. At 4 o'clock, choir will have, I am uh, Brother John of Patmos, right? Bro uh, Pastor Ben is the Lord, did you know? Pastor Ben is the Lord. Terry Bate will be reading all the parts of the angels. The whole thing is scripted out, th uh, theater, reader's theater style. Uh, and there's a lot of surprises along the way. And Heather Cooper really, with the organ, brings the story of Revelation alive. So uh, I really encourage you, if you're able, come at 4 o'clock um, and you will be blessed. As we are uh, looking forward to this class, let us pray that the Spirit will be with us. Almighty God, we give you thanks for the gift of a new day, an opportunity to gather as your chosen and called out people in this world. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to this very place today. We thank you for uh, the gift of your son, T.C. Ham, and we pray that your Spirit will be strong with him today as he teaches us and leads us. May we grow uh, in faith and wisdom and understanding as we seek to know you better. We give you all that we are, say, do, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Dan was telling me that it's been three years. It doesn't seem that long. Does it seem that long? Three years? I think he's wrong. I think I was just here last year. I think I missed one year. 
It's good to be back with you all. Uh, I almost said y'all. I did live in Texas for a, a total of 16 years, and I got saying y'all because everybody there says it, and it's a nice plural of you. But did you know that you, plural is y'all, but there's a plural for y'all? All of y'all. <laughs> there's y'all and all of y'all. So, so all of y'all come back now, you hear? So um, when Michael contacted me and he said, we're thinking about doing this thing on theology, and he mentions the book uh, that, he, that he mentioned, my, uh, the Migliori Faith Seeking Understanding. And it just hit me. Uh, that's, that's incredible that, that I've chosen that textbook for my introduction to theology, and he's, he's obviously it's impacted his life. And uh, I, the first time I read the book, I was in seminary, so this was 1995. It was a textbook. It's not really a traditional textbook. It is an introduction to theology. And I read it in 1995, and I put it away, like most you know, grad school students do. And it was in my library, but I haven't touched it for years and years and years until Malone asked me, would you consider teaching introduction to theology? And uh, the Malone administration know that I really don't mind teaching first-year students or introductory-level courses. Uh, most faculty members want to teach the upper-level courses. Uh, for them, that's more interesting. And for, for me, I, I don't think that's the case. I think people who are unshaped uh, and to introduce new ideas to them, that's exciting to me. And lots of faculty member professors don't like freshmen because <laughs> they're just coming in from high school and they think they can coast. Uh, they, they, they say, oh, high school is easy, but college won't be. Uh, but they, so lots of faculty members explicitly will tell you, I don't like freshman classes. I love it. Um, it gives me a chance to, to really shape their whole college career, uh, help them think about their faith more deeply for the first time. So when they asked me to teach Introduction to Theology, they knew that I would be open to it. And so I said, sure. And as soon as I said, sure, I thought, I've never taught intro-level theology before I've taught. I've taught various theological courses, like ecclesiology, the study of the church, or eschatology, study of the end times. We talk about those. But I've never taught intro. So I said, what do I do? <laughs> um, so I went back to my library of books in my office, and I'm looking around going, Miglior. I haven't seen that in years. So, since 1995, I haven't read it again. So I pulled my copy out and, and I read it uh, quickly. It's just, we, I've read it before. I mean, it's been years. I've got decent memories. Like, oh, yeah. Oh, this is where I got this idea. I thought I've had this idea all along, but I learned it here. It was his idea. I've been saying this like it was mine. So I'm flipping through and this is really, really good. Uh, it's the first edition. And I thought, there's got to be a, an update to this. So I went online and looked it up. It's like the third or fourth edition now, so it's been reprinted. But it's amazing because it is not one of those popular level books that everybody knows about. So that when Michael said, hey, this is kind of how we're structuring, I thought, has it become more popular? <laughs> Do people know about this book? So I went around my department, Bible, theolo Bible theology people, I said, Do you know Faith Seeking Understanding by Miglior? Do you know? Do you know? Nobody knew. So it, it hasn't become like a Chuck Swindoll or, you know, uh, uh, 
Mercado level book. It hasn't, but somehow it connected. And and I'm not I'm not prone to seeing uh, or over interpreting God's providence because. Um, Calvin says, be careful with that, because when you try to guess God's providence, it makes you a fool. So I, I'm, I try not to overinterpret what's happening, but I felt like there was some divine providence there, that he is structuring the course this way, and that's my textbook that I haven't touched in years until this past, this past year. So um, this, the course you'll see, uh, if you consistently attend, is structured very logically in a sense. Most theologians, the, the, theology textbooks and you know, courses, it's um, divided like this typically. God, human, and sin, and salvation. That's how typical theological structure, t- uh, courses are structured. This one doesn't move this way. It actually begins very <laughs> logically where it should. What is theology and how do we do it? And then it applies that method throughout the book. Um, and that method really is looking at everything through Jesus. It's like, duh. <laughs> Shouldn't Christians be doing that already? Uh, but we don't. We, when you, if you ask somebody, define God for, for, for me, they'll say things like omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, maybe infinite. And then they'll just come up with like unmoved mover, the original cause, all these ideas that come up, right? And then you ask them, how does that relate to Jesus? And they're like, oh, I wasn't thinking about Jesus. Why not? Shouldn't your definition of God be informed by who Jesus is? And so Migliore's book really shouldn't be earth-shattering, but it is. Uh, It shouldn't be. But he focuses on what's called the Trinitarian thinking. So um, God, the, the uniqueness of Christian God is that God is Trinity, triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in one being, one God. And he says, we need to adopt this thinking, Trinitarian thinking. And um, I hope that today we set the stage. I'll be back one more time next week. um, And then other people will come to fill in the gaps. And then in the spring, I'll come back again uh, for like five, I think five weeks straight, pretty much, talking about how does this impact our life and our practice as Christians. Um, So today we're talking about what is theology. And... Uh, I'd like to play some, there's nothing really below it, Um, so I'd like to play word association with you. When you hear the word theology, what's the first word comes to your mind? Shout it at me. Study. God. Seminary. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry? God knowledge. That's the first thing, really? I asked this to my freshman class, and they said, boring, (laughs) hard, (laughs) fail, (laughs) exams, gen ed, because this is a required course for all Malone students. So introduction to theology is required. No matter what your background, what major you are, it's part of their general education requirement. So they said gen ed. And some of them have no faith to speak of, because Malone is an open enrollment campus, so we're explicitly Christian. All faculty are Christians of different backgrounds, but the students don't have to be to attend. Lots of, majority of Christian colleges are not like that. They only admit Christian students. So um, 
when, you, when I asked, what do you think of theology? Like, seriously, they said boring and hard. I don't know what it is. And fail. They think they're afraid of failing the course. Uh, when I think about this book that Michael mentioned that I'm structuring with today's content as well as what Michael's planning on doing, this title alone uh, still remains... I, I told you, I've forgotten about this book. This book, it's since 1995. I put it away. But I often think about theology as faith-seeking understanding. And I like the title even because it tells us what theology is. Because it says faith-seeking understanding and introduction to Christian theology. Oh, third edition, okay. So faith. Faith is a relational term. Faith isn't knowledge, necessarily. Because we use, we use the word faith in everyday language relationally. I have faith in you. Or he or she was unfaithful. In fact, even the word infidelity comes from the Latin version of the word fidelis, faithfulness. Unfaithful, infidelity. So faith is always relational. So I like that concept of defining theology not just as a bunch of doctrines to memorize or to understand or to learn, but faith is at the basis of what we're doing. Seeking. Seeking doesn't end, does it? So it, when you, if, if you pick up this book and read it, but I recommend it. It's, a, it's an amazing work. Uh, and he says, the goal of theology isn't simply to get to some sort of conclusion, but it's in the process of seeking God and seeking understanding. Faith seeking understanding. By the way, uh, Migli Migliori, um, I think that's how you, I think that Migliori, I think it just sounds like an Italian last name, but um, most people say Migliore, but I think it's Migliori. He credits this phrase, faith seeking understanding, to medieval Christian theologians, uh, especially Anselm and people like that. So he, it, this isn't original to him. He's saying, we've kind of forgotten what faith is, in the West especially, because we tend to think of, I mean, theology is, because we tend to think of theology as a bunch of doctrines. Uh, so he's going back to the medieval era almost to say, hey, this thing that we're doing, it isn't just to know something. It's the process of seeking, and seeking never ends. Seeking is also purposeful. Like when you lose your keys and you're seeking your keys, it's purposeful. It isn't just random seeking. When you seek something, you want something, and you have an end or purpose in mind. So um, I like even those two things. Then here's the, the word that I really like, understanding, because understanding isn't just knowledge. So when we think of knowledge and understanding, knowledge can mean... Um, okay, so. I have some basic knowledge of the internal combustion engine. I know, in fact, the chemistry of the carbon bonds that break as it burns. So that's why we have all those anes, like propane, octane. So gasoline is octane. It's a organic chemistry stuff. Octane, so it's the carbon chains that break, and it releases energy and it burns. The burning of the fuel pumps. It creates a little tiny explosion that pumps the pistons. And the pistons then drive the engine, and the engine then drives the wheels. I, under, I know these things. But if my car breaks down, 
I pull out my phone and call roadside service because I have no idea how to fix anything because I don't understand it. I know things about it, lots of things about it. In fact, if I had a discussion with a mechanic, I would understand everything he's saying because I know these things, but I have no idea once to open the hood what it is. I'm just looking at objects. <laughs> I don't know what anything is. <laughs> I know one thing, actually. I know where the windshield wiper fluid goes. <laughs> That's about it. Open that up and pull. That's the extent of my handiness around a car. So understanding, I love that word in English because it has two, two really broad meanings. One really is um, comprehension, like understanding. But when, if I say, thank you for understanding, ooh, that's different, isn't it? Oh, man, just the other day I said to my wife, wow, you're so understanding of my, I have many, many ailments, and I complain about it all the time. And she's a, a medical professional, and so she hears this all day long, and she comes home when I'm complaining, and she's still like, yeah, I understand this, and have you tried this, and have you tried this? And I said, wow, you're really understanding about my ailments. Not only that, my complaints. She really has comprehension of my ailments, because she's trained to understand those things, but... She's understanding of me. So I love that in English, it, the word understanding implies patience and, um, a, again, a relational dynamic. Thanks for understanding. It's a relational concept, isn't it? So it goes back to, to that, and that, that's why I love this book so much. Just the title alone uh, defines for me what theology is. So he defines it this way in one point, early on in the book, page 7. The understanding, again, going back to the word, that is sought by faith is not speculative knowledge, but the wisdom that illumines life and practice. It's speculative knowledge, not, no, not that. We don't just sit in ivory, in ivory towers. We don't sit and just speculate about who God is. We don't just even read the Bible and speculate as to what it might be um, saying about who God is or who we are. We're not trying to extract knowledge from it. It's wisdom. I love that word too, wisdom. That illumines, that sheds light on what we do. Life and practice. What do you all think about that as a definition? Is it limiting? Is it freeing? It's not the whole of the book, but it starts there. You like it? Yeah? I was saying to them, Michael, earlier that when I, first, when, when I re read this book again um, recently, I realized how much of my thinking had been informed by this book. Because I read it my first year in seminary in 1995. And again, that idea has shaped me. So when I teach theology, um, I don't go, here's a thing you got to remember, and here's a thing you got to remember, and here's a thing you got to remember. The essays often begin with, hey, what do you remember about this? Then, how does this impact your life? And if you can't articulate that, then you're not doing theology. Um, there, educators talk about Bloom's taxonomy of learning a lot, uh, and, and initially my master's program was in, in education. So 
I, go, I keep going back to Bloom because it's really helpful in terms of thinking about how people learn and what knowledge is, what understanding is. So I, I'd like to go back to this. So some of you might have heard of these categories, the, the three major categories of learning. Uh, so it's cognitive, affective, and psychomotor are his terms, Bloom. And I structure even my courses and my syllabi. If you look at my syllabus, it'll have cognitive objectives. What do, what do I want you to know? It'll have affect, affective objectives. What attitudes do I want you to gain? What feelings? How, how do I want you to respond to this? And then psychomotor learning is just doing things and, do, and, and learning it as we go. I'll explain each of these separately. So cognitive, what is cognitive knowledge? Cognitive knowledge is something you can gain by just sitting and learning. Earlier I said, I know a lot about the internal combustion engine, because I read about it. I have cognitive knowledge about, about octanes, carbon chains, oxygen. I have cognitive knowledge of it. I play the cello, and one of the composers that I love is J.S. Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach. And I know who Bach is, because I've read a lot about this man. In fact, I know that his, he composed most of his music, for, um, you could say all, but at least most of it, for the church. And, you, and he wanted to worship God, our God, through music. I can tell you that he is the, considered the father of the Baroque period. Of, so I know a lot about Bach, because I read about Bach. And that's cognitive knowledge. Affective knowledge, uh, our attitudes, our feelings, uh, our, our um, emotional response to things is, is considered knowledge or a kind of knowing. So when I play Bach, I have an attitude. When I listen to Bach, I have an attitude. I love Bach. Psychomotor. I can play Bach. He's not easy to play. Uh, he, I don't think he was ever a cellist, but he wrote six suites. Bach's suite is considered um, one of the most incredible comp compositions in, in human history. Uh, he wrote six suites for one cello to play all by itself with no accompaniment, and each suite has six movements in it. And so if you sit down and play it all the way through, which Yo-Yo Ma does regularly these days, that's what he wants to do. Um, he, he just plays, filled audience, one chair, and he's memorized the entire thing, and it takes about two hours to perform from memory, and he plays it fast. So if you, if you played it slowly, it could take three hours to play, because it's six different compositions, and it's really, really hard to play. So I play it poorly, but I can still play. So da 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 I can play it. So now I, I, I have cognitive knowledge about Bach. I have attitudes and feelings about Bach. And now it's muscle memory when I play Bach. It, it isn't, I'm not thinking about anything. Usually I'm feeling something. Sometimes I am thinking about, like, oh, I missed that note. <laughs> but it's usually just muscle memory at that point. It's, it's psychomotor. Relational knowledge is the one that Bloom doesn't talk about because it isn't really a separate category of, learn, of, lear, of learning and knowledge, but I think this is important because relational knowledge, that's my wife, by the way. <laughs> I 
if you're wondering who that is. Once we were at the airport, you know how you have to show your ID at the airport? The person didn't check her ID. I said, and she's going to check her ID? And the TSA agent said, I thought she was your daughter. <laughs> so I told him, it's great that she looks young enough to be my daughter. What does it say that I look old enough to be her father? Because <laughs> she's my age. <laughs> so, <laughs> isn't she gorgeous? So, relational knowledge involves all three domains from Bloom's taxonomy. Obviously, because I know a lot about her. In fact, um, I, if, if I wrote a book about everything I know about Ruth, and I handed it to you, and you read it, and it would be massive, but if I handed it to you, you read it, and you memorized it, you and I would share the same cognitive knowledge about this woman. That's how cognitive knowledge works. So, but relational knowledge might include all three, but it transcends those three. Um, let me illustrate this. So, I know a lot about my wife, cognitive knowledge. I have feelings toward her that you all don't have, clearly. Um, I have attitudes and, and this emotional response just seeing her earlier, just, just this picture alone. As soon as I saw it, I have a response. Like, I have to stop and not gush. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just want to go, oh. And, and so I have a lot of feelings toward my wife. And I have psychomotor understanding of my wife. And in and Malone, this is a joke. Do you see the joke? Um, there's a phrase that students love to say, malopriate, uh, Malone appropriate. And talking about um, psychomotor knowledge of my wife would not be appropriate in that setting. So I this is black it out as a joke. There's really nothing under it that's <laughs> scandalous. Um, so. Obviously, I have experiential knowledge of my wife. I know how she fits when she hugs me. She's five feet tall. <laughs> she used to be five one, she, but she's shrunk. Uh, we're all shrinking, right? So she fits right here. She's five feet tall. So when she comes at me, she always turns her head, just comes at me, and, and she hits me right here. I know exactly how she fits. I try never go under her arms because she's this tall, right? Usually... Um, my, my arms wrap around her shoulders, right? So, but if she's sad or something, or if she needs encouragement, I know that's not enough. So I have to get down a little bit because I want to hug around her back. I know how she fits. I know how she sounds. Uh, I know how her hair feels in my hands. She's got luscious beautiful hair. I, can, I know what they, what they feel like, each strand. I know what they feel like when they're on the floor. But the experiential knowledge I have of her transcends. Even if I wrote everything down, like she has this luscious hair, beautiful hair, and it feels like this. Even if I could meticulously detail every little thing about my, my psychomotor knowledge of her hair, you still wouldn't know it. You would only still have cognitive knowledge of that until you touch the hair, and she'd be like, why are you touching me? So, relational knowledge includes all three, uh, but it transcends it, and it changes how we act. Relational knowledge changes how we act. Let me illustrate. 
I'm a romantic. I don't know if you picked that up in the last few years. I'm a through and through die in the world romantic. When Ruth and I were dating, um, she was renting this one, one room in this house. We were both seminary students, poor. And she was, so she was renting this one little room for like $200 a month. She had a side door, which was nice. And the landlady was a Christian woman who wanted to have some company, but also wanted to uh, rent her room cheaply to seminary students. So, so she was, her renting thing was posted at our seminary. And she was really a lovely woman. And so she always told us and Ruth, like, you have the whole house. Don't think that you're just renting the room. Use whatever you need. Have parties, have get-togethers, do whatever you want. So uh, when, when we started dating, uh, it was in January, so by February, Valentine's Day comes along. So I asked the landlady, could I come to your kitchen, and I love to cook. I'll make Ruth a meal, and I'll cook enough so that Put it aside for you too, but I'll make Ruth a meal and I'll set up a little table in her room with candlelights and everything. Um, and and she, oh, of course. And so I was going to surprise Ruth with this thing. To prepare for that, though, remember I'm a romantic. I wrote a poem. It took me a lot. I'm not a poet, so it took me a lot of energy and effort to write this poem. I used to have a fountain pen. And uh, it's my favorite pen in the world. It was a gift from my, my dad. So I took my fountain pen, bought a beautiful stationery, and wrote out, once I was you know, done with the final draft, I wrote it out onto this poem, slowly and carefully with good penmanship, right? And then I folded it, and I tied it to a long stem rose. Right? Oh, because you're a romantic. My wife, back then and today, is practical to the core. She's not sentimental, okay? Practical, I mean practical to the core. So she comes in to her room and she sees candlelight and dinner and she's like, wow, how did you get in here? Was her first response. <laughs> and I said, you know, your, your landlady let me in and I cooked this meal and she goes, oh, it looks good. Let me, let me go get changed. I'm like, it's going to get cold. Can we eat first? And she's like, it'll be fine. So she goes about her thing. I'm just waiting. And so she's done, and she sits down, and we're at the table, and I give her the rose. And she goes, oh, thanks, and she puts it down. <laughs> I said, what, what, uh, uh, there's a poem. And she's like, oh, look at that. And so she takes the poem out, and I kid you not, this is how long. It took me weeks of just pouring my heart and soul into this. This is, I am, this is not an exaggeration, okay? This is what she did. After she opened the poem, she did this. Thanks. That was it. I am not, that was not an exaggeration. It took her literally two seconds to skim it. She skimmed my poem. Because <laughs> what does a poem serve? What practical purpose does it serve? Nothing. So if you're practical to the core, it's, it's almost meaningless. And I, I had to stop myself from crying. <laughs> I said, oh, Mike, pull. She put it in the flowers, God. And, uh, and then we ate. And I learned that I know very little about her because I made stuff that she doesn't really like. Who, I mean, who doesn't like peppers and mushrooms? She doesn't. Well, she likes mushrooms now a little bit, but 
She doesn't like peppers or beans or potatoes. And there's a bunch of stuff she just doesn't like. And I had all those things in the dish. <laughs> and, but she was really polite about it, and she ate what she, what she, you know, she did, and we moved on. As I got to know her, though, I, what I said, she is practical to the core. So if she can't touch it, feel it, smell it, really has no meaning. So trying to have like theological conversations with her, which is very about ideas, she would glaze over. And I would say, you're in seminary. Why can't we talk about this? And he's like, it's boring. It's like, what do you want to do? Like, I want to serve little kids. I want to like hold them, hug them, teach them stuff, and you know, play with them. Like, oh, God. We've been married now 22 years. Um, in those 22 years, I've learned, I haven't, I haven't written a poem in 22 years. <laughs> Here's what I have learned to do. When she was in nursing school initially, because um, she became an, when, when our son was, uh, anyway, she was in nursing school, uh, and then she went to get her master's, second, her second master's, her first master's in education, Christian education, second master's in, in, in nursing. So she's a nurse practitioner. I mentioned earlier she's in, in um, medicine, so she's in, in medical professional. And so her, when she was in, uh, actually, it goes back to when she was pregnant. I told you she's this tall. <clears throat> and she's, she's like a, she's tiny. I could just pick her up like this often. She's so small. She gained 50% of her body weight during her pregnancy because <laughs> she had no morning sickness, none. And she just devoured food in front of her. Um, she loved food during that time. And only thing she wanted me to do was eat with her. <laughs> I gained 20 pounds. <laughs> so, um, in fact, five of those was just one one cruise we went on when she was like four months pregnant. We thought before our son gets here, uh, before our child gets here, we're gonna, you know, we have freedom. Let's go do something cool and fun that we'll probably never do for the next 18 years. And so it was taking an Alaskan cruise, and just during like nine days, I gained like five pounds because all you do on a cruise is eat. There's nothing much else to do. So during her pregnancy, her, her legs would just swell. Her feet would swell and everything. And she was so tiny and all that weight was putting on her. And so, I, so we went through this routine that in the evenings when, we're, when I was done and she was done, we'd sit down on the couch and we'd put on something, whatever. It didn't really matter. Uh, we'd watch TV or watch a movie or something on DVD and we'd put on something. And as long as we were sitting there, her head was over there and her feet were in front of me, and I massaged them to get the blood going back up like you're supposed to, and gave her a foot rub every night during the last half of her pregnancy, really. And then she did, when she became a nurse, she was on her feet like 12 hours a day, and she'd come home, and she used to wear these compression socks and things like that. Still, I mean, she would come home and her feet would be a mess. And I mean, she had nice shoes, and all those nurses have nice shoes. But was, was, so when she was a nurse, a floor nurse, she just had problems with her feet. So we continued that practice for a few more years, in the evenings. And then she discovered when the movie's done, I'm done, because I want to go shower and get ready for bed. So she figured out which the long movies are in my collection. <laughs> I, don't, I can't tell you how many times we watched Ben Hur. <laughs> 
So learning that she was so practical in her outlook in life. And by the way, um, this is why I think nursing fit, really fit her well, because trying to help people spiritually for her was just a struggle. It's not practical enough. She couldn't touch spirit. And then when she became a nurse, I thought, oh, man, she's going to hate this job. It's going it's, it's to be taxing uh, physically. She loved it. She was helping people physically, practically. She came home every day fulfilled. I was like, I would hate that job, right? And she would come home, and, and medical professionals do this. During dinner, we'll talk about poop and blood and vomit. I'm like, please, dinner time, no. No, no nurse talk during dinner time. Um, but because for her, it's just very practical. It's just real things. These are real things. Why does it bother you? And then, um, but now though, uh, she sits most of the day. She's a nurse practitioner, so she sits, and so her feet aren't swelling, but she's hunched over, documenting things all the time. Now, so she gets back rubs. <laughs> her feet are fine. <laughs> she does yoga now. And, but why am I telling you this story? My relational knowledge of my wife has changed me, how I approach life, and how not just her, I've become so practical, and I'm the romantic person. The longer we've been together, she's starting to become more and more romantic, and I'm becoming more practical. So our relationship, you've seen this, right? People start to even look alike when they've been together a long time. Um, our relational knowledge changes us. So cognitive knowledge, affective knowledge, uh, psychomotor knowledge, but when you combine all three into a relationship, it changes who we are. And so in, in terms of theology, we can know a lot about God. I did take one theology class in seminary that I really detested um, because it really was, here's some information regurgitated on a test. And it, it was easy, but it was so boring and so dry that I just thought, this is theology? Turns out, it really wasn't. It was bad theology. But we can know about God and God's creation. Hopefully, we will have an attitude of love and obedience and devotion to God and concern for our neighbors and concern for the environment and God's creation. Our attitudes needs to be informed by our theology. And um, like all true deep knowledge of something, uh, the theology should be experiential and psychomotor, something that we do and live out. And that goes back to Miglior's definition of what theology is. Theology ought to change us because it's relational knowledge. It's the God that we worship and love and want to obey, and it changes how we act. So when Miglior says, faith seeks understanding that um, illumines life and practice. It doesn't necessarily say um, that if you do theology, you will change, because I think that's up to us, kind of how we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Um, I'd like to ask you some, just, so think about this for me, and share with our, our group here. I'm sure I'm not the only one who's been changed by relationships. And I used my wife as an example. But goodness, my father, my grandmother, I've talked about her a lot before when I've been here. 
there's, there are many relationships in our lives that changed how we think, how we behave. So I'd like you to think about that for a moment and then share with us uh, the, number one. Ignore number two for now. Uh, share with us, rest of the, rest of the group, like how, how did some relational knowledge change you? Think about it for a moment. Just share as the Spirit leads. Don't worry about number two for now. Anyone would like to volunteer? Dan's got the microphone. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I just think uh, when I was growing up, my relationship with my parents definitely affected how I acted because I did not want to disappoint them. Thank you. Anyone else? Um, I grew up in a family that wasn't very sports-minded, married a, a big sports fan, and now I'm a bigger Browns fan and an Indians fan. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Than my, I know, than my husband. I would rather watch the than he. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I uh, hope I don't surprise you, but I was not the greatest high school student hmm. and uh, had very little ambition to go to college. Um, if you don't know, uh, I, not, not that it's special, but it, I, I'm an orthopedic surgeon now. Uh, and when I went to uh, uh, Ohio State, I ran into a professor who started to explain to me anatomy and physiology much the way uh, you're hearing this morning. It wasn't just this is the name of this bone and this attaches to it, but when I learned how the body worked and how it moved, uh, my mind just exploded. And I remember coming home and telling my mom and dad, um, this is so cool, John Chidley taught me, and this is so cool. And they sat at the dinner table and stared at me because they had no idea <laughs> Who's this kid? at all what I was talking about. But when I left home the second time to go back to Ohio State and, and I took those courses, uh, Dr. Chidley uh, inspired me, and I just couldn't quit learning and studying. And so that knowledge and that experience led me into orthopedics. Thank you. It became a psychomotor, cognitive, effective... <laughs> Yes. John, I don't have a relationship with John anymore. I miss him. Yeah. I'm not even sure he's See, there. I had the opposite experience <laughs> when I took A&P. Uh, I took A&P. I was, I was pre-med in, co in college, and uh, I took A&P, and it was literally memorize every part of the human body. Don't worry about how it works for now. They'll teach you that in med, in med school. And it was the most boring class ever, and it was meaningless, and I hated it. And um, maybe if I had your teacher, I might have actually continued on. But I was like, this is not what I want to do. Anyone else? One more person, maybe, if you'd like to share with us. Okay, if not, uh, let's think about the second question. So, faith-seeking understanding. 
understanding. There are some things that we already have questions about, don't we? We come to any topic with questions, even if, it, if they're not explicitly stated as questions. When we, when we approach something, we're shaped by how we're approaching it. We don't come to a uh, subject or anything, really, for that matter, with a blank slate. The idea of a tabula rasa or a blank slate, it just doesn't exist. We're human beings with, with our own experiences and our questions. And so when, we, when you approach theology, faith-seeking understanding, what questions do you, do you bring to the table? What questions do you have about Christian faith? No questions? I think there's um, a question that many people have, me included sometimes, as why me or why not me? And, and where was God? Mm. And, um, and, and then later realizing where God was, you know, that he was there all the time. Mm. Thank you. Um, I just taught my upper level Bible, uh, in my upper level Bible, I, t I teach a course on Psalms and Wisdom. And the connecting tissue in Psalms and Wisdom, and Psalms, Wisdom books are Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. The, the, there's thread there. And one of the questions, that, the big question of why, so Ecclesiastes asks, might ask, why do we live? What is the purpose of life? What's the meaning of all this? Why is this even like this? Why do, why do wicked prosper? Why do the innocent suffer? Um, Job might ask, literally, he asks, why am I suffering like this? Why me? When you say, why me? I thought of that. Uh, and, and in the Psalms, too, we just studied Psalm 22 that begins... Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from, uh, from me or my, my groaning? And that's the verse that Jesus cites on the cross. Uh, in fact, uh, whenever the New Testament authors first cite sounds, then the meaning, it's really, really, really important. And New Testament cites the sounds that Jesus is making sometimes in Greek letters because Jesus is speaking Aramaic, not Greek. And the Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, you might have heard that phrase, is in Aramaic. But really, Greek letters trying to write Aramaic is impossible. Because uh, Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew. And chapter 22 of the Psalms begins, Eli, Eli, Lama Azavatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is saying that literally, word for word. And the gospel writers record the sounds he makes and then translates it into Greek. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so, why, why have you forsaken me? The why is a big question of theology. Well, in fact, um, not just theology, but um, pretty much every discipline, you go deep enough, you get to the why questions. My students who say, who say theology and Bibles, it's too amorphous. It, I, there is no right answer, wrong answer. I love math, because math, there's always a right answer. And I say, wait until your fourth year in math. All the questions become why. And there is no straightforward answer. You get theoretical, oh, number theory. You get to the levels high, high math, and it's just like mind-blowing philosophy. Um, so I just wait. So um, the why question, 
why? And also, my students, when I ask this, my students often say, why do we suffer? Or why do good people suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Lots of why questions. Thank you. Uh, another question. Do we have about Christian faith or theology? How is God? How did God become God? Where did, he, yeah. Where did he, God come, come from? come from? Where did God come from? What is it? Yeah. You know, what, what's, what what's is all God? this about? Right. Yeah. I know. That's a, that's a big one, right? Well, I, uh, I am really fascinated by a lot of astronomy and stuff that's in mm-hmm, the universe, and mm-hmm. I just think, you know, yeah. okay, God created all of that, yeah. but We're, how, <laughs> you know, what's, what started it? How, yeah. how did it begin? I have a, a, a physicist friend who's also a chemist. He's brilliant. He's got, he earned two science PhDs at the same time. Chemistry and physics are two very dis- different disciplines, and he earned two PhDs at the same time. His surface chemistry things he did to reduce surface friction is literally on NASA things in, in space. Brilliant guy. He was once trying to explain to me how big the universe was, using numbers and things, like factors and powers of this and that. I was like, I don't know. And then I said, okay, let me just explain how big our galaxy is. And then he started like, illustrating it with, well, if you're the size of a, this, and I was like, okay, you lost me already. And then, okay, let me just explain how big the planetary system is, our own planetary system, just that. I was like, yeah, can't imagine it. So he said, why are you having such a hard time? Because I don't understand these numbers, these factors, these, like the powers. I don't know. Um, and, then, and then he said something really, really just kind of brilliant. He said, if you got on a plane and just could travel with the speed of light, you would not even get to the middle of our galaxy in your lifetime. And that's one among billions. I don't understand. Stop messing with me. I couldn't imagine how big our universe was. I just can't. I still can't. And so he said, for all intents and purposes, for our experience, it's infinite. Oh, I get that. So it basically goes on forever. Like, yeah. It does, pretty much. It's infinite. For all intents and purposes, it's infinite. So what God created that? Um, (laughs) So if I can't imagine how big our universe is, how do I imagine a God who created that? But the question goes back to... uh, how did God become God? And, and, and you just, just asked a question that when I asked this in my class, they literally asked that. It's like, where did God come from? Because we're asking the medieval question. Everything has to have a, a cause. So this gets caused by this. So this is this old phrase called turtles all the way down in medieval era. So if a turtle is sitting on another turtle, well, that turtle is sitting on a different turtle, just a bigger turtle all the way down, and it just keeps going forever. Um, at some point, you have to have the biggest turtle, but then that turtle still has to sit on something. So it's, call, it's called infinite regression, and, and we have to think, if something has to be caused, then where did God come from? God might be the biggest turtle in the world, or ever, but where is God's source? So yeah, that's a question that theologians have asked <laughs> since the beginning of time, time immemorial. Um, and I don't think that, so that, we'll never get that one. <laughs> I don't think. But it's a great question to explore because I think we have an answer for it that we don't understand. God is the eternal being. God always was. God always will be. 
Um, Michael mentioned um, my friend Michael Paul. He just read a book by Michael Paul, a New Testament scholar. And he, wrote, he writes a blog also, if you want to read him, Michael Paul, P-A-H-L, if you want to look him up. His blogs are really accessible. He's a pastor now. He used to be a New Testament scholar and a theologian, and then he started pastoring. Um, and so he writes for his congregation, really. So blogs are accessible if you want to read him. But he, wrote, he once began a blog this way. God is not a being. And I thought, oh, no, Michael, you went liberal on me. You're denying God's existence now? Because the title was, Why I'm an Atheist. <laughs> and I thought, no, no. And then, and then he goes on to say, God is not a being. God is being itself. Without God, there is no being. There is no existence. There's nothing without God. God is, God is what holds existence together. God is being. And then we make God small when we make God into one being who, I mean, who, we have to think in those terms, right? A being we can con conceive of almost. But how do you, how do you conceive of a God who holds existence together? So Michael Paul is still a devout conservative evangelical. No, he doesn't like the word evangelical anymore, but he likes orthodox. He believes in the Nicene Creed which uh, Miglior goes back to, not the Nicene Creed. Remind me what time we end. 10.50, okay, I got five more minutes, okay. Uh, I want to introduce some terms to you, because Miglior, and I don't know if other people will use, I use terms without always defining things for, for uh, my students, and they don't always ask, hey, what do you mean by that? And they don't always look at the back of the book in the glossary either. So then what I've learned to do in teaching is to kind of set terms that are commonly used in any field. And that's what I'm going to do. But before I do that, I'm, I'm going to show you why I do it. Do you know that word? That word? Could you just pronounce it for me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's me, 1983. Uh, my students, every time I showed that picture, my students just crack up. And I still don't understand why. Uh, and they try to explain to me why they're laughing. And it's like, well, this doesn't look like you. But, but then it does. It's like, but then look at, your, look at the way you're standing, the way you're dressed. Well, it was 1983. Uh, and, but they have no reference to 1983. This is the year that I moved to the U.S. from Korea. And I moved to the U.S. and I was struggling with, with English for a long time. And then I used, to think, I used to think, why do they have a telephone number if they're going to refuse service? <laughs> right? <laughs> Don't publicize. It's like, call us and we'll refuse you. <laughs> so, <laughs> our very smart pastor said, which one? When I said, when I said, when I said do you know that word? He said, which one? There's refuse and there's refuse. Uh, two different words, right? So words are important. So some terms that I use um, interchangeably sometimes or very casually, doctrine. Doctrine just means teaching. Uh, it doesn't mean a system of belief, really. But doctrine is what a doctor does. If you actually look up the word doctor in a Merriam-Webster dictionary, the first one is teacher in the church because that's where the word comes from, uh, Latin-based. Doctors teach doctrine. And so medical doctors, were, they earn a doctoral degree in medicine, so they can teach medicine now, right? 
And that's what we mean by doctors. So doctrine is what doctors do. Gospel. I think uh, there's some confusion sometimes, so I'm just clarifying. If people say gospel in a kind of a lowercase sense, like <clears throat> the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's in lowercase, it means the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. If I say the book of Matthew or the gospel of Matthew, that's a specific kind of genre that people are talking about. Uh, earlier I said I taught, I've taught upper level courses in theology, but not intra level. And this is a, this is a, these are terms that people use all the time, that I use it. And pneumatologically speaking, I'll say, and people are like, what? Pneumatology is the study of the spirit. Uh, I use the word uh, sometimes to, to explain what, where it comes from. Uh, pneumonia. Pneumonia, infection of your lungs. And pneuma in Greek means spirit, breath, wind. So it, your lungs create that breathing. And so um, in Greek, pneuma, P is pronounced in Greek. In English, it's not. But uh, pneuma in Greek is breath, wind, spirit. It's one idea. And you think, how is breath, wind, and spirit all one thing? Well, in their world, is one. So think about it. <sighs> I just created wind by breathing, right? So wind and breath is the same thing. What about spirit? Think about when people die. <sighs> breath is gone. No more wind. No more breath. So the spirit, wind, in all of the ancient world, not just Panuma, the Hebrew word for the same thing, ruach. Ruach in Hebrew is wind, breath, spirit. So sometimes it gets translated differently in English. Pneumatology is the study of the spirit. I mentioned ecclesiology earlier. Ecclesia is church. Ecclesiology is a study of the church or doctrine of the church. Ecclesiology. So, um, and, and throughout your course, uh, how, how Michael structured it, uh, you'll cover these areas. I'll, co I'll come back and talk about ecclesiology later too. Soteriology is a study of salvation, because the Greek word soter or soteria is salvation. Uh, I think one last one, yeah. Christ Christology is really easy because it has the word Christos right in there. That's pretty easy. But I did have a question that we don't really have time to explore. Uh, my grandmother used to have this black and white kind of very artistic picture of Jesus Christ. And I, I wanted to ask, um, does this violate the second commandment that says don't make any images? And now, if, if Jesus is God, and we have images of God, isn't that a, isn't that a violation of the second commandment of the 10? Uh, so it's, a, it's an interesting question. I just realized <clears throat> just now, Michael, I'm sorry. My class is 75 minutes normally back <laughs> on campus. This is 60. This is why I was running out of time. I realized just now, why am I so bad at math? 60 doesn't fit into 75. <laughs> right? 75 does not fit into 60, I mean. It's the third power. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I just realized I'm trying to put 75 minutes into 60. I apologize for that. I'll prepare better next time. I did take a couple of things out, but I didn't take out enough, apparently. But I did want to talk about that, um, this one, a little bit, but we're, we're out of time. So thank you for, for your patience, and thanks for understanding. Thank <laughs> that, you. Thank you.